it's a familiar plot device in movies to have one of the characters of the movie be looking for someone of high standing, someone they're searching for, but they've never met before. When they meet that person, they don't recognize them, and they have a conversation with them. It sets up this tension and anticipation in us as an audience, waiting for that moment when the character realizes, aha, you are them. That's who I was looking for. I was reminded of one of the uh, famous science fiction movies, Star Wars, The Empire Strikes Back. Some of you love that movie. Some of you have never seen that movie. And you don't care about it. But in that movie, Luke Skywalker wants to learn how to be a Jedi master. And so he travels to a distant planet to look for the Jedi master named Yoda. Of course, he expects someone impressive, a warrior. And when he lands, he meets this little green creature who eats his food and messes with his belongings. He doesn't have time for this little green creature. He says, I'm looking for the Jedi master named Yoda. Yoda says, take him to you, I will. And he does, only to find out, of course, that the little green creature is the Jedi master himself. In our passage today, the disciples are in a very different situation. They've not just met Jesus, they've spent three years with Him. And yet it seems as though they still don't know in whose presence they stand. There's more to learn about Jesus. They still need an aha moment about who Jesus is. They need to see that Jesus is the way to God. Jesus is, in fact, God. And if they've seen Jesus, they've seen God far more than Moses ever saw. Turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 14. John chapter 14, and we're looking at the first 14 verses. Jesus is in the upper room. It's the night of the Passover. And Jesus is giving them His farewell address. Follow along with me as I read. John chapter 14, 1 through 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to the where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, 
show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father." Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Let's ask for the Lord's help as we study His Word this afternoon. Heavenly Father, it is one thing to read the Scriptures and simply understand what the words meant mean together when they're strung together in sentences, but it's a wholly different thing to understand who you are because of what we read in your word. Lord, give us eyes of faith even as we study your scripture this afternoon. Help us behold you knowing that we're beholding the Father. In Christ's name, amen. Jesus wants us to see that He is the way, the way to God, who guarantees us sure promises. Jesus is the way to God who guarantees us sure promises. There's just three points to the outline this afternoon of the sermon, and if you're taking notes, the first point is trust Jesus for heaven. Trust Jesus. Jesus for heaven. The disciples have a lot to be upset and worried about. They've given up their lives to follow Jesus for three years. They've followed Him into Jerusalem, the hotbed of hostility against Jesus. They never would have imagined that His promise to the Jews back in chapter 8 that He would leave them and go where they couldn't go or find Him would also apply to them. But Jesus wants them to trust Him for heaven, that He's going to come back for them. We see that in verses 1 through 7. Jesus has reassuring words for them in verse 1, of course. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Think of it for just a moment. Jesus knows that He's going to be beaten, He's going to be tried, He's going to be sent to a horrific execution in the next 24 hours. And if there's any time that His disciples should be comforting Him, it's now. But Jesus is the one doing the comforting. Jesus cares about them. The truth that Jesus knows His disciples need to hear is that even though He's about to leave them soon and they don't know where He's going, He's going to come back 
and take them to be with him where he is. He's going to take them to his father's house, he says. He's going to prepare a place for them while he's gone. Now, that preparation that Jesus is going to be doing really is largely accomplished by his death, his resurrection, and his ascension into heaven. Jesus says he's going there, but he's going to come back. And of course, here he's speaking about the second coming, something that hasn't happened yet in our lifetimes yet, something that every Christian is waiting with eager expectation for. Brothers and sisters, if you've repented of your sin and put your trust and faith in Christ, if you're living as if Jesus were the king of your life, you're getting your direction from him day in and day out, you have the sure promise that Jesus is coming back for you. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20, Paul reminds the Corinthians, he says, you are not your own for you were bought with a price. And believe me, Jesus will not forget or abandon what He's purchased at the costly price of His blood. That's you. Now think about it for just a minute. You don't walk onto the lot of an automobile sales place and buy a car and then forget to take it with you. You don't buy a house and forget to go live in it. Brothers and sisters, you are so much more valuable to Jesus than anything that we could purchase in this life for ourselves. He will not forget us. He will come back for us. Is that promise something that you look forward to regularly, that you think about? Is the hope of heaven and being with Jesus something that steadies you when you're in the midst of hard times? You know, as Christians, we must live as people with an eternal perspective, looking forward to the day that's coming, to the city that's going to be built for us. Those of you who have been coming to the Hebrews midweek Bible study, we've been going through chapter 11 in Hebrews, which is about all those people in the Old Testament who were people of faith. They were people who didn't receive what had been promised for them. And you and I, might not receive that promise in our lifetimes either. But be assured, Jesus will come back for us and take us to be with Him in heaven. That's a promise we can count on. Brothers and sisters, when there's times of joy in our lives, it's a small taste of what's to come. Let it, let it cause you to look forward. And when there's times of hardship in your life as well, let it remind you that this world is fading, that it's something that we will one day look back on and never experience again when we're in heaven with Jesus. You know, the Lord's Supper is actually one corporate act that we engage in together to remind each other that Jesus is coming again to take us to heaven. Our short and minimal meal that we take together every member meeting and once a month then in this service should remind us of the never-ending lavish feast that we're going to share when Jesus comes back for us. That's what it should do for us. Jesus will keep that promise to come and get us.
In Jesus' last statement there in verse 4 about his return for his people, he tells the apostles that they know the way to where he's going, in fact. And that sparks a question for Thomas in verse 5. He says, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? To which, of course, Jesus replies with the sixth of his seven famous I am statements. Look there at that verse 6 again. I'm sure you've heard this verse before. Matt reminded us of it at the very beginning of the service. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, this, of course, is one of the clearest statements by Jesus that people can only be saved from their sin by trusting in Him. He's the only way. No one comes to the Father except through Jesus. There's no other way to know God. There's no other way to be made right with God. This past Friday night, the evangelism class, many from the evangelism class and even others from our church, went to Global Village, and we were engaging, trying to engage in conversations with people there in Global Village, which we prayed and worked towards getting to, to spiritual topics. We wanted to talk to people about Jesus. I walked into the uh, Yemeni pavilion, and I struck up a conversation with a Yemeni man behind the counter. You can guess what he was trying to sell me. Honey. Right. His name was Hamid. And, uh, of course, we talked a lot about honey. But eventually, and I was praying, Lord, help me talk about the gospel and not honey. Uh, and then some, I decided to ask him about Ramadan. And uh, as he told me just a little bit about Ramadan... Uh, I also told him that I was a Christian. And he was very quick, of course, to tell me, he said, Islam, Christianity, it's the same, same, same. Now, that might be good for selling honey. Um, but it is a frequent and common comment that you and I hear as we live in this multinational, multireligious country of the UAE, isn't it? I can't count the number of times over the last 20 years in my conversations with Muslim friends that I've heard them say, oh, it's the same. They say we worship the same God. It's, it results in the same thing. But of course, to say that Jesus is just a man, Jesus is just a prophet, that he's only one of the many prophets that God spoke through directly, contradicts what Jesus is telling the disciples right here in this passage. It's, it's likely that every single one of us have heard that comment before, and I wonder how many of us have been able to respond in a gracious and kind way, but to say, I, I beg to differ. We actually believe some very different things about how to know God. Have you thought about how you've responded to that kind of statement before? How will you respond, at least going forward now? Maybe you could show them these verses in John chapter 14. You could pull out your phone and open up the Bible app that's on your phone and say, this is what Jesus said, among other things. 
This verse and so many others are the reason why evangelism and missions is so important to us who believe the true gospel, isn't it? We have to take the gospel to our neighbors. We have to share the gospel with our friends and even with strangers that we don't know who live in faraway places. We have to do that because without trusting in Jesus, people will stand before him on the day of judgment and be condemned to an eternity in hell. And we care about that. That's why we pray for nations. That's why we prayed together just a moment ago for the Uyghur people of northwest China. It's why we work together as a church to train pastoral interns, to send them out and plant healthy churches, proclaiming the true gospel in places where we will probably never live. Places like Kathmandu, places like North India, places like Zambia, maybe Cameroon next year. Jesus is the only way to the Father. He doesn't show us the way. He is the way. Back in chapter 8, verse 32, Jesus told the crowds, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And of course, when we studied those, that verse uh, the natural question would come to our minds, well, what is the truth? Well, here we have Jesus saying, I am the truth. Jesus is the truth who sets us free. Jesus is the truth who sets us free from the slavery to sin and the verdict of being guilty before our holy God, a verdict that hangs over all of our heads. If you're not a Christian, you are welcome here at Covenant Hope Church. Every week when we gather, you can come, you can bring whoever you want. It doesn't matter about their religious background. We welcome everyone in our services. But we want to make sure that you know what we believe about salvation and knowing God. We believe that you just can't add Jesus to whatever religious upbringing that you were born into. In fact, many of us, many of us weren't born into Christian families ourselves, those who are members of this church. But at some point in time, many of you, many of us came to know that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through Him. And you put your trust and faith in Jesus. Jesus himself says that it's off limits to worship him and any other gods, to put him together with any other religion. And so admitting your sin and turning your back on it is the first step, but then turning and trusting in Jesus and only Jesus is the second part of becoming a Christian. That's the way to be right with God, the God who made you. Don't just listen to us. Listen to Jesus in this verse. Read the whole Gospel of John. Read all four Gospels. Read all the rest of the New Testament, the authorized interpreters writing about Jesus and the Gospel. That's what the Bible is in the New Testament in particular. 
No one comes to the Father except through him. That's what you'll hear them say in unison in the Bible. One more thing to make clear before we move on to the next set of verses. Since Jesus was revealed 2,000 years ago, people can only be saved by trusting in him, in his name. But what about before Jesus walked the earth? How would they know Jesus' name then? People in the Old Testament were saved by repenting and putting their faith in the covenant promises that God had given His people back then. Promises like He gave to Abraham in chapters 12 and 15 and 17 and 22 of Genesis. Promises that He gave to Moses and the Israelites when they came out of Egypt. Promises that He gave to King David that a son of His would reign on the throne forever and ever. Jesus became the fulfillment of all those promises given to the Old Testament saints. And so when people in the Old Testament repented and had faith in God's Old Testament promises, God counted them as being righteous, just like He counts us righteous when we trust in Jesus, the fulfillment of those promises. Over and over again, the New Testament writers even call those Old Testament promises the gospel. I could show you those places in the New Testament after the service. But everyone who is saved throughout all of time is saved by faith in the promises of God. And since Jesus is the fulfillment of those promises, now we proclaim Him to the world. Thomas asked, how can we know the way? Because Jesus had just told them, you know the way to where I'm going. But now it's Philip's turn to ask a question. How in the world could Jesus tell them that they know the Father and have seen Him? Philip's question and the first part of Jesus' answer are the focus of our second point this afternoon. First, we saw that Jesus told us to trust Him for heaven, and now we see Jesus to see God. See Jesus to see God. That's there in verses 8 through 11. Philip and all the rest of the disciples have been stunned at what Jesus said. How in the world could they have seen the Father? (laughs) Like all good Jews, they knew that no one could see God and live. Even Moses had only been allowed to see the backside of God on Mount Sinai, just as Michelle read to us earlier in the service. And so he tells Jesus there in verse 8, show us the Father and it is enough for us, as if that was a small thing for Jesus to do. You know, Jesus' reply here has a touch of sadness in it, doesn't it? Look there at verse 9 with me. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Of course, they'd been with him for three years. They'd seen him do unbelievable miracles and heard his teachings over and over and over again. And still, they couldn't see yet 
that to see Jesus was to see the Father. Later, with the help of the Holy Spirit, of course, and the evidence of the cross and the resurrection, they would understand that they had walked and talked and laughed and cried and lived with God. And eventually, John would pin the words that come in just the 18th verse in this gospel. He says, No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. By that point in time, John knew that he had seen the Father in Jesus. Paul, of course, could write to the Colossian church, for in Him, Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. The fullness of God, not just a part of God, but all of God. And so if you want to know God, if you want to see God, see Jesus. Oftentimes, people can hear those words and even believe in a superficial way. They can say, I believe this is true. But not be truly seeing God by seeing Jesus with the eyes of faith. Being familiar with Jesus in the pages of Scripture is not the same as having faith in Jesus who reigns as Lord on the throne. Of course, these disciples were familiar with Jesus, but they had more to see. Our youngest daughter, Emma, grew up here in Dubai Grew up going to youth group, listening to sermons, being taught by us in our home, Bible study most mornings before going off to church, to school, excuse me. She took better sermon notes than I did. She loved church, in fact. But when I would ask Emma when she got into her teenage years, what do you think about Jesus? She would tell me that she wasn't ready to follow him yet. Okay, I thought, and so we kept praying. No pressure, continued exposure to the gospel and gospel teaching, occasional questions about where she stood with Jesus. She was, in some ways, like these disciples, familiar with Jesus. And then it happened at the cross conference in 2013. We went, and Emma attended and it was in the very last session of that conference that it dawned on her. She had heard testimony after testimony after testimony of people who had heard the gospel and in a relatively short period of time get, put their trust and faith in Jesus. And the Holy Spirit opened up her heart then. And she broke down weeping and ran out of the conference knowing that she needed to follow Jesus. Later, when I found her and had a conversation with her, she said, it struck me that I was familiar with Jesus, but I'd never decided to give him my life. Brothers and sisters, we must not just be familiar with Jesus. We must believe in him. We must trust in Him. Oh, listen, if you are a youth or you're one of the children in our church, I'll, 
I want you to listen up. Or maybe if they're not listening, parents, I want you to share this with them. You cannot simply know about Jesus and call yourself a Christian. You must trust Jesus with your life. You can't inherit your parents' faith. Give your life to him. Give your life to him knowing that you're giving your life to God. One more thing to point out here in this section. This isn't the first time Jesus has said it, but did you notice Jesus' statements there in verses 10 and 11? He says twice, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. And he speaks about the Father who dwells in me. It's interesting language, isn't it? Let me teach you a theological word and concept that you may not be familiar with. The word to name is perichoresis. All right? This is the teaching in the sermon that's on the top shelf. Perichoresis. Perichoresis describes the eternal mutual indwelling of the three persons of the Trinity. The Father dwells in the Son. The Son dwells in the Spirit. The Spirit dwells in the Father. And you can reverse each one of those pairs as well. This is foundational orthodox teaching about the Trinity that we come to understand through reading all of the Scriptures together. So because each of the persons of the Trinity mutually indwell one another, we see that the Bible teaches that each one of them is fully divine, fully God. And as we go further into Jesus' farewell address to the disciples, we're going to see that we too can be caught up into union with God through faith in Jesus, through the Holy Spirit who will come and dwell in us. And if the Spirit dwells in us, then the Son and the Father dwell in us as well. Perichoresis, okay? That's your big word for the week. Jesus not only has promises for His disciples about His future return and taking them to heaven, but He also has promises for them about their role in doing His works in the world while they wait for His return. And we see that in verses 12 through 14. There we see Jesus encourage us to ask Him in prayer or ask Jesus in prayer. That's the third point this afternoon. Ask Jesus in prayer. These last three verses hold amazing promises for us, but they've also been misinterpreted and abused over and over again, especially by those churches preaching different versions of what you might call the prosperity gospel. Jesus has just made reference to the works of the Father that have been done through Him. Jesus consistently taught that He only did what the Father showed Him, and He said only the words that the Father gave Him to say. He's urging His disciples to recognize the Father dwelling in Him and working in Him by seeing the works He did. And then there in verses 12 and four, through 14, He begins speaking about the works that anyone will do who believes in Him. Anyone. They're going to do His works in the world. Just as He did His Father's works, so we who trust in Him will do Jesus' works in the world. Look there at verse 12 again. It's so very important. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Isn't that amazing? Jesus says, whoever believes in me will do greater works than the works he's been doing. Now, how is that possible? What does he mean that we can do greater works than him? The pastor named Bill Johnson, who is the pastor of Bethel Church in California in the United States, teaches, and he's not the only one, that Jesus intends for us to do miracles and signs that are even greater than what Jesus himself did. He says that Jesus was emptied of his divinity when he became a man and was incarnated on the earth. And that he was only able to do the works that he did because he had the Holy Spirit with him. Now, Jesus did have the Holy Spirit with him. But it is wrong to teach that Jesus was emptied of his divinity. And furthermore, it's wrong, we believe, to teach that we should be doing things like raising the dead, miraculously feeding tens of thousands of people rather than 5,000 that Jesus fed. Pastor Bill Johnson and others like him believe that we should be walking on water, I think. Is that what Jesus means? I think not. Certainly, Jesus, of course, gave his apostles the power to do miracles, the apostles. But there's no reason to see their miracles, even the ones that we read about in the book of Acts, as greater in magnitude or degree than Jesus' miracles. Jesus' miracles remain the most remarkable. The key to understanding this promise from Jesus is in that last phrase, because I am going to the Father. Jesus' greatest sign had yet to come, actually, at this point in the gospel. His death, his burial, and his resurrection were his greatest sign. And since that has taken place, he and the Father have sent the Spirit to dwell in every person. We're going to read about it next week. Every person who repents and trusts in Jesus. So with Jesus' death and resurrection and the sending of the Spirit, the gospel message was completely revealed to mankind. And Jesus then sent his apostles, and of course now us, to take that gospel to the ends of the earth. Let me list four ways that the apostles and even we do greater works than Jesus. First, geographically, we do greater works than Jesus. Jesus never preached outside of Palestine. But his disciples and even us have the possibility of spreading the gospel all around the entire planet. Geographically, the works that we do can be greater in that sense than Jesus' works. Second, ethnically, our works can be greater. Jesus ministered almost exclusively to Jews. And when he sent the disciples out during his ministry, he told them to only minister the good news to Jews. But after his death and resurrection and the coming of the Spirit, Jesus has sent us 
his people to reach every nation, language, and tribe around the globe. Paul can tell the Colossians in his letter to them that the gospel is bearing fruit in the whole world, he says. Third, numerically, our works can be greater than Jesus's. Acts begins with less than 100 disciples huddled together after Jesus' death and resurrection. But with the coming of the Spirit, the true disciples of Jesus immediately begin to swell to thousands. And today there are hundreds of millions who claim Christ as Lord and Savior. Fourth, spiritually, our works can be greater than Jesus, even The theologian William Barclay writes, the triumphs of the message of the cross were even greater than the triumphs of Jesus in the days of his flesh. Jesus' words and deeds were somewhat veiled and hidden during the days of his ministry on earth. We see it in the confusion of his disciples, even in this passage. Even John has portrayed Jesus' ministry as really not reaping much of a harvest at all. The Jews have rejected him. It's really only a few that are in that Samaritan village back in chapter 4 who put their trust and faith in him. And even there, we don't have absolute certainty. But once Jesus had died and risen and sent the Spirit, a brand new age of clarity and power arrived. The power of the gospel proclaimed in the power of the Spirit today is bringing about those greater works in and through us, brothers and sisters. Now, of course, it's silly to try and draw a hard contrast between what Jesus did and what we do, isn't it? That's mainly because it's Jesus who's working in and through us. Jesus points to that in those last two verses. His works happen through us as we ask Him in prayer. Look again at those amazing verses, 13 and 14. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now here again, of course, we read verses that have been abused over and over again. Can we ask for anything? The prosperity gospel teachers would have you believe that you should make your Christmas list and pray in faith to God like he's some kind of celestial Santa Claus. But there are two phrases that describe what kinds of requests that Jesus answered right here in these verses. Prayers prayed in his name and requests that glorify the Father. Prayers prayed in His name and requests that will glorify the Father. To pray in Jesus' name doesn't simply mean to tack on in Jesus' name at the end of your prayers as if it were a magical incantation. That's not what that means. In fact, it's not even necessary to say the phrase in order to pray in Jesus' name. The name of Jesus refers to his character and his purposes in the world. 
his character, and his purposes in the world. It's his reputation. It's Jesus' goals. It's the same idea that we should think of when we think of the commandment in Exodus to not take the Lord's name in vain. That does not mean simply don't curse. It means to claim the Lord as your God and yet to live your life with complete disregard for Him. The commandment says don't do that. Your life must represent the Lord in every way. That's what it means to not take the Lord's name in vain, to, have, to take the Lord's name to great effect, in other words. It means so much more than cursing. And so here to pray in Jesus' name is to pray for things that align with who Jesus is and what we know He wants to do in us and in the world. In the same way, Jesus isn't promising to answer any prayer He's promising to answer prayers that would glorify God. Now, that should make us think about our praying, shouldn't it? Let me suggest two steps that you and I can take that will help us pray in Jesus' name. First, slow down when you pray. Slow down. I find that oftentimes the prayers that we, or even I say quickly, are things that we've prayed over and over again in language and phrases that we've just memorized or we've heard other people say. I remember sitting with a student in one of the food courts at a university here in Dubai and teaching this student how to pray. And He prayed extremely rapidly with lots of phrases strung together that clearly he had just learned at church. And so I slowed him down and I said, wait, 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 wait. Let's start again. Now, I want you to pray like Jesus is like here with us because guess what? He is. And he's listening like I'm listening right now. And so if you talk to me, like that, it's hard for me to actually understand what you're saying. You're just rattling off phrases and sayings. I want you to think about who you're talking to, and I want you to talk to him like he's really there. Slowing down allows us to pray meaningfully and personally rather than like robots programmed to simply say certain things. We're all finding ourselves falling into that habit. In fact, this past week, I sat down at my desk one of the days, and I had something due very soon, and I lifted up my prayers to the Lord, and I said, Lord, I need, and somehow the Spirit stopped me. doesn't always happen. <laughs> and I thought, I need to think more about who you are, Lord. That's what I need. I need to love your word more. I need for my affections to grow for you. More than I need for you to give me something so that I can accomplish what I want to accomplish. Oh, I'm thankful the Lord does that. I pray he does it more and more for all of us. Slow down when you pray. Secondly, pray what Scripture teaches about God's character and goals. Pray what Scripture teaches. The better you know God's Word and interpret it rightly, 
the more that you're going to be able to truly pray in His name. Think, think for just a minute about how this might change what you pray in certain typical situations. Okay? Let's take, for example, when someone's sick in the church. Someone's sick anywhere who's a believer, let's say. Pray that God heals them. Yes. Okay, now you're done praying that. What else should you pray? What else do we know about trials? Trials like sicknesses and illness. They're there to refine and strengthen our faith. What might God's goals be in that sick person's life? And so pray too that your sick Christian friend's faith would grow as they learn to depend on God in this hardship. Pray that they treasure Jesus more than their health even in this life. Pray that they use this trial to testify to others about God's faithfulness in the midst of their hardship, whether they're healed or not. Do you begin to see how much more we can pray in Jesus' name when someone's sick? What about a decision to make? When there's a decision that you need to make and you don't know what to do, how can you pray? Of course you can pray, Lord, what should I do? Help me, Lord. <laughs> you can say, help me have wisdom, but there's more. You can pray, help me grow in allegiance to you, Lord, as I wait on you for an answer and the help that you might give me. Help me to know who else I should consult and get wise counsel from as I make this decision, Lord. Lord, help me know my, how my own heart is prone to wander and worship idols. Lord, help me know what decision that I should make here so that I don't end up worshiping an idol, doing the thing that I want to do, not discerning the idolatry in my own heart rather than discerning what you want me to do. Pray, which choice would help me serve you best, Lord? This promise of Jesus is much more narrowly focused than we tend to assume. Of course, it's about Jesus' work in the world in us and through us. And it's much more powerful and stunning to think that Jesus offers to do anything that we ask in His name for the Father's glory. When we pray for churches that are in faraway lands, God will work. When we pray for the gospel to go out to places that we'll never visit, God will work. When we pray for our non-Christian friends to hear the gospel and to come to faith, God will work. Brothers and sisters, let's pray in faith. Let's pray in His name. Let's pray. When your heart is troubled and you're worried about the future, do you remember the great promise of heaven that Jesus has made for us? Brothers and sisters, trust Jesus for heaven. It's coming. He's coming. Do you long to see God? Do you long to know Him? See Jesus and see God. It's astounding that you and I can do even greater works than Jesus. 
but we must ask him for things that align with his character and his purposes in the world and in us. It's a simple but powerful promise. Ask Jesus in prayer. Brothers and sisters, that very same Jesus who had in him the fullness of God there with the apostles is the same Jesus that's with us through the Spirit. Let's look to him. Let's trust in him. Let's go to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we praise you for such great and awesome promises, promises for the future that you will come and take us to be with yourself, promises for the present that even we can do greater works than you if we ask in your name and for things that glorify the Father. Oh, Lord, help us be a church. Help us be a people that do these things. In Christ's name, amen.